But uh, I, there, are, there are so many things I think that I can, um, uh, that I can get out of the subject of joy and understanding our responsibility to rejoice uh, that I know even in looking at it twice in a single day that I'm going to leave some things out that maybe that certainly we could consider that would be helpful to us. Uh, but if you'll permit me, I just want to present some things, some thoughts of mine that I think that are a follow-up to somewhat what we talked about uh, this morning. <laughs> what would happen if all your dreams came true? Uh, if everything that you wanted and tried to acquire, suddenly you were able to have. I don't know that we would ever be able to maybe answer that question, certainly not experientially. Uh, but uh, Rocky Valentine might help us uh, in this. Uh, Rocky Valentine is the main character in episode number 28 of The Twilight Zone. If you're a fan of The Twilight Zone from the 1960s, Rod Serling narrated that uh, rather eerie uh, television sh- show. And Rocky was the main character. He's an unlucky, narcissistic, small-time thief who uh, robs banks. And in in the beginning of the episode, he robs a jewelry store, uh, and he dies in the process of robbing that jewelry store. Uh, But in the way that Twilight Zone episodes go, he wakes up in the afterlife uh, next to a man named Pip, played by Sebastian Cabot. Um, And uh, he believes that almost initially that uh, Pip is his guardian angel, after he comes to grips with the fact that he's not alive anymore. And Pip promises them to give him whatever he wants. Just tell him what he wants, he'll give him whatever he desires. And Rocky's somewhat suspicious of that particular offer, but it's too good to pass up. So he just starts telling him everything that he wants. And eventually he asks for everything that he so sought after in his life. Um, And so he lives in a world now where he goes to the casino and he never loses that he's surrounded by beautiful women who pay, pay attention to him all day long. Uh, he is well known about all the community. Everybody likes him. Uh, everybody thinks, you know, he's, the, he's a, he is a really great guy. Um, and he has everything that he wanted in life. And at first, it seems like, you see, Rocky's dreams has come true and that, you know, this is really where he wants to be. But as months, as months go, along, go along, he gets rather bored with all of this. And what he recognizes is that it sort of lo- lose, it sort of lost its magic, and it's not really what he anticipated. There's no challenge to any of it. Even ask Pip if he can do some things where the, he, he wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed success, but that's not what it's about. It's about getting this aspect, you see, of everything that you strive to get. And then finally in the episode, in a moment of rage, he grabs Pip and he says, if i got to stay here another day, I'm going to go nuts. I don't belong in heaven, see? I want to go to the other place. And Pip says, heaven? Whatever gave you the idea that you were in heaven? This is the other place. And of course, at that time, the haunting voice of Rod Serling comes on and says, you see, a scared, angry little man who never got a break. Now he has everything he ever wanted, and he's going to have to live with it for eternity in the twilight zone. Would it really be everything that we wanted if we got everything we wanted? Would it really be what we thought it would be? You know, I want to talk for a few moments about being satisfied. And we talked some about it this morning. But more specifically, about our responsibility to be satisfied with God. And how sometimes that is really an illusion to us. Or at least it's something that does elude us in our spiritual life. What I think we're bad at, that we have to recognize, is that we are pretty terrible at predicting how any one particular thing will satisfy us, how it will make us feel. 
We all tend to overestimate that if I had this, then I would feel good. That if I had this, my dreams would come true. That this is really what I would want. Inevitably, though, even though we do get that, and maybe we do, maybe we don't, but sometimes we do, that after a period of time, we're disappointed. Either in the fact that we got that and it wasn't what we wanted, or that it didn't fill us up, it wasn't enough. And so we feel duped from the standpoint that here was something that was placed before us and we, it was, we thought it would give us what we promised, but it didn't come that way. Robbie Zacharias once said, the loneliest moment in life is when you receive that which you thought was the ultimate and it lets you down. And that's kind of the way life is in many regards. But why is this so? If there is an answer that we could come up with that would be biblical, at least from the perspective of seeing life in its true reality, why is it that this place is such a disappointing place? Why is this not our happy place in the world in which we live? Well, the 16th Psalm, verse 11, David writes, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What David says here is that full joy is in your presence. That you make known to me the way I ought to live. And in the aspect of making known to me the way I ought to live, what you're telling me is, and what you do tell me is, that I'm never going to be happy until I have you. I'm not suggesting, I don't think the psalmist is suggesting either, that we can't not even in this life be in the presence of God. He's not simply pushing it forward to heaven and saying, well, nothing's going to really be, uh, give you any kind of pleasure or any kind of fulfillment until you get to heaven. Certainly there is a sense in which, a very real sense in which, God is in our midst. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? That He's in our midst and that we can, he can be, we can be in the presence of God in, in, a, in, a sense, in a sense even today as we worship Him and as He promises to be with us. But what we are recognizing here, I think, at least to some degree, is that the human spirit that's been created by God has been created with a capacity to enjoy, a capacity to have joy, that cannot be filled with things that are less. That there are only certain things that will make us truly happy and give us the fulfillment that we seek. And in the final analysis, that ends in God. That God is the one who can fill us up. That God created us in such a way that that's the way it will be for us, and that's the way it is for all of us. He gave us other things for our enjoyment. He provides for us things that we can enjoy that, that provide for us some aspect of fulfillment temporarily. But after a while, they don't fulfill us anymore. And sometimes God, in order to get us to understand that, takes them away from us. And we suffer when he takes them away. But he's teaching us that these things are really not it. There's more than this. I think I, I brought this up in a Bible class not too long ago. That I, this kind of came to my mind in having babies around again. That uh, one thing that babies like when they start crying is they like pacifiers. So you go to the store and you buy these little things that you plug in their mouth, and then they're crying. You put it in there; it's satisfied. And that's a that's a very handy thing to have. But every mother knows, and some fathers know, I suppose too, that that there's a danger in that because once you give him that pacifier that's a, that's a happy day when you give it to him you know they quiet down and they're happy and there's you know it, it makes the, it makes life better at the moment but you know that sooner or later you're going to have to take that thing away and that's the hard day isn't it when they get old enough they can't have that anything and you got to put it away and you got to throw it away you got to convince them they don't need it that's a task and they'll suffer and you probably will too on the day that the pacifier goes away but the idea you see of the pacifier is that that's the very nature of the thing 
It's only made to pacify for a little while, but ever after a while, you'll grow out of that. The child will grow out of that. It, it will need something other. It, that pacifier will not keep it happy all its life. They'll grow out of that, and they'll have to have something else. And ultimately, that pacifier represents something else to the child that he comes to realize about later on as he grows up. So it's good that you take it away. It won't fulfill, it won't fulfill the role that it's meant for all, all the time. So God gives us the enjoyments of the things that we have in this life, and we enjoy them. And God gives them so them they are gifts, they're good for us. But sometimes he has to take them away, and we lose those things. And what that shows us is that these things are really not all what it's all about. And also, you see, that, uh, that, he, that God really cares that we grow. He really cares that we become people that can be satisfied in a deeper way. Someone has said that God is the only one that can fill the vacuum of the human heart. That he created this aspect of an emptiness there that only God can fill. And I think that certainly that there's a sense in which that's absolutely true about what we know about ourselves. But having my dreams come true in this life, getting what I want the most, can also be viewed, I think, in a positive side. Not just that it wouldn't be what I want it to be even if I got it, but in the final analysis, there's a sense in which true joy, fulfilling joy, is getting what I want. True joy is getting what I want if what I want is God. If what I learn to want and desire, if what my soul yearns after is God, then getting what I yearn after is, will ultimately satisfy me. John Piper, the popular writer and religious teacher, has coined the phrase that's intriguing. He says, God has most glorified us when we are most satisfied in him. There's a whole lot about John Piper's teaching that I don't agree with. He's an abject Calvinist, and so I reject a lot of what he would teach as not being in the Scriptures. But this thought, I think, has somewhat of a ring of truth to it when I think about this aspect of true joy. My purpose, as God reveals in his word, and your purpose as well, is to bring glory to God. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That God would get the glory of what I do. Paul says it several times, and I think one of the places we can see that even more clearly is Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a, 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 a lengthy reading, but notice that Paul comes back as he describes the process of our redemption, that he comes back to this very same purpose in mind. Describing how we get to be saved, he says, having predestined us, this is verse 5, predestined unto us to adoption as the sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that it, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one thing, all, all, in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. And him also who are, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and to the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, what Paul says several, at least three times in this description of our redemption is that there's a reason why God did what he did in saving us. That the ultimate purpose of redemption is to the praise of the glory of God. It's as though as Paul is saying, this all happens so that God gets the credit. Now that may be a, a, a somewhat of a trite way of presenting it, but the idea that God 
glory would be praised or that we would have the opportunity to praise the glory of God is exactly what Paul is presenting here. The fruit of this goes further than just making God look good to others. Certainly that's a part of it. But bringing glory to God fills up my spirit. It can be understood here that what Paul is describing here is the ultimate satisfaction of the human soul. That as when God redeems man, he puts man in a position to, to attain his highest good, to attain his highest joy. That God will satisfy me in a way that nothing else can satisfy me when he redeems me and he, put, he gives me the inheritance uh, of my redemption. And the mo- more satisfied I am in bringing glory to God, the more glory he gets. The more I put my trust in him and say, you're enough, that's all I need, the more he's glorified in that. Because there's so many people out there that do not react that way to life, that when his children do react that way to life, God gets the credit for that. And there's a lot of ways I think you can look at that in scriptures and recognize that that's exactly what happened in those who suffered for the cause of Christ. That when they were willing to put their trust in God and be satisfied with what God was doing in their life, not only were they fulfilled, but God was glorified as well. A passage that uh, Brother Dennis read for us just a few moments ago, maybe an illustration of this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes there, he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart, that he might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, we're familiar with these verses. Usually we talk about this or discuss it maybe in the context of answered prayer. That here was a here was something that Paul wanted God to do. That God, he asked God three times to do it, and God uh, said no, and it didn't come about. And when we think about, sometimes we study them. We think about what the literal, what what the thorn in the flesh was. What was it that was actually wrong with Paul? What was he really asking that God would uh, remove from him? Uh, was Paul hurting uh, in sense of a physical ailment of the flesh? He was certainly hurting, but was this aspect of thorn in the flesh a physical malady, a physical problem with his literal body? Or what is, is what Paul describing here? A pain or a, 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 a thorn that comes as a result of the human experience. Pain takes different forms. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional. Uh, sometimes it's mental pain. And that aspect of pain comes as a result of being in the flesh. So it could very well be described in the language here that this is a thorn of the flesh. What we do know, as Paul describes it, he calls this pain a messenger of Satan designed to buffet him. The word buffet there in the original language means to beat up. It's a word that literally means to lay the blow on the face of another. So you get the picture here? Paul is saying, uh, help me God, Satan is beating me up. He's hitting me in the face with this. So it's obviously describing something that can't just be overlooked. It's not something you say, well, you know, get over it. It'll be all right. I can just ignore it. Whatever it was, was not only disconcerting, but certainly was painful. And as Paul hurts... He asked God to relieve the pain, take the pain away. So he prays. In fact, the word literally means that he begs with God. Three times he begs God, take it away. But we know that God does not take it away. In fact, the real import of this passage is that God does not remove the thorn in the flesh. But Paul's answer really is at the heart of this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. What grace is he talking about? You know, I saw this on um, a plaque not too long ago in someone's home. Second Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you. And I thought, of course, about the passage 
what an, uh, a very powerful sentiment to put uh, in your home or to reflect upon on a daily basis. But the same thought came to my mind that comes to my mind as I read that again. In the context, can we know what grace that Paul is talking about? The word grace here is, is, the, is the word uh, charese from which, uh, the, from which the word grace is mostly translated in the scriptures. It means an act of graciousness. It literally means a gift. Something that God gives is a grace. Or even something that you would give to someone, ever, uh, someone else, whether it be an act or a physical, literal gift, could be considered a grace. Certainly it has with it the aspect of that which you do not deserve, and that's part and parcel within the, within the meaning of the word itself. But the foundation of our joy, and I believe the foundation of Paul's remarks here, is to understand that God has given something to him, and that what God is saying to Paul is, what I've given you is enough. That this grace is sufficient. And so, the grace is not the removal of the thorn, is it? That's obvious, and it's important to see that when God says, I'm giving you something, what he does not give Paul is the removal of the thorn. He lets that stay. So it's something that's given in addition to that, or outside that, or maybe even before that, that is to be Paul's sufficiency. We might easily apply this to Paul's salvation, right? That he was recipient of God's grace, the gift of God's forgiveness. What an enormous gift that was. Paul certainly was lost, and if God had not presented to him in clear indication who he was and appeared to him on the road to Damascus, uh, there's very little prospect that Paul would have ever believe the gospel. And so he is saved as a result of that. Except for the grace of God, you see, that I would not be anything, Paul says. It also might very well be that Paul's talking about his ministry. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, it calls, he calls salvation a grace. It's a gift of God that no man should boast. And then Ephesians chapter 3, he uses the same word to talk about this aspect of his ministry. I became a minister, chapter 3, verse 7. I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So in Ephesians, Paul mentions both. He mentions his salvation, or all men's salvation. Then he mentions the gift of his apostleship, that he was put to be a minister of God by the grace or the gift of God. Now, either one of those, or both of them together, would fit into this context. We could see, easily see that Paul could be saying that God's telling him that what I've done for you already in terms of your salvation, the ministry I've given to you, the life that you have given, that's enough. Be, be satisfied with that. My grace is sufficient for you. But I want to suggest there's another, uh, another way to look at this, or at least, uh, again, these are some of my thoughts on this passage that uh, at least expanded for me. Another occurrence of the word grace, charese, in this very book, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, is where Paul is discussing with the church at Corinth their need to finish the, the, the contribution they were making to the poor saints um, uh, in Macedonia or, or in Judea, and they were to uh, then join their Macedonian brethren, and, and he wanted them to give generously and cheerfully to the poor saints. And in making that plea to them, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, 9 and verse 8, I don't think I have that up here. No. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. And 
Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. And for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayers for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So Paul's encouraging them to give. And he in essence tells them that God is able to make all grace abound towards them. Now he's not talking about their salvation. They're already saved. He's not talking about even the forgiveness of their sins. In the context he's talking about that when you give to God, he'll give you the the ability to give. If you make a determination to do what God wants you to do, He will make all grace abound to you. The grace is not their salvation, but rather it's the provision that they will be given everything they need to do to do God's work, to accomplish it. He explains that. He says God gives seed to the sower. So if a person goes out to sow seed, he sows it. He gets rid of the seed in his bag, but God puts more in there so he can continue to do the work. God provides for the spiritual work that He commands. Knowing this then, what Paul's telling the Corinthians, you can give freely. You can give not only freely, you can give cheerfully. You don't have to be restricted. You don't have to be afraid. You can give. Why? Because God's going to provide for you. He's going to make His grace abound unto you in this so that you can do God's work. Now what he goes on to tell them, and if you do this, if you give, then those folks who receive that gift will thank God. And the, God will get the glory. God will be glorified in this if you do what God has given you to do. So what this tells me is that God's spiritual provision, His grace, is sufficient to give me what I need to do the work of God. And when I do the work of God, it provides joy for me and those who also are benefited by that work. And that results in God getting the glory. That fits pretty well, doesn't it? With what Paul says and what we have described here as our mission and the idea of what it means to really have joy in our life. So when I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and make an application here that through the experience of his own pain, Paul was told by God that God's grace is sufficient for him. That what God provides for him to do the work of God with, that that's enough. That his joy is rooted in the fact, you see, that God will be glorified. Most he will be glorified when Paul is satisfied in what God provides. And so if I'm satisfied in what God has provided for me and the work that He's provided for me to do, if I'm giving thanks for that and I'm cheerfully giving to others to accomplish that work, God continues to fill up my bag and He provides the grace that I need to do that. And I'm happy. And that's the foundation of joy. So how does Paul describe that? Well, he says... My grace is, Paul, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will boast, rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, now I am strong. Now, I want you to notice that Paul uses terminology, he repeats terminology here, for emphasis and for understanding. That Paul, when God gives Paul the answer, his understanding of that, his learning of that is that what God wants him to be is not reluctantly, grudgingly, okay, that's the way it has to be, it has to be. The Paul's conclusion is, if God tells me, my grace is sufficient for you, then I will gladly, I will in great pleasure 
be weak. If it's through my weakness that God gets glorified, then let me be weak. Let me be infirmed. Let me be persecuted. Take it away from me. If by taking it away from me, God gets the glory. And so the aspect here is that there's a sense, there's a level of spirituality that transcends so much our thinking about what it means to be happy and have joy. And the other word that he uses twice is the word dunamis in this passage. First is translated by the word power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then later on, he says that when I am when I am weak, then I am strong, and that's the same word. You notice the you notice the connection there. That whose power is this? Well, if I'm weak, it can't be mine. It's the weakness, the persecution that makes it so that I'm powerless. So it must be the power of Christ. And that's what he says, that I'm weak so that the power of Christ can rest upon me. So then what am I? I'm strong. I'm strong because the power of Christ rests upon me. Now, that's a foundation for joy and happiness in life. Why people can sing in prison. Why they can give their life to Christ and never, you see, turn back from that. Never regret that and have great joy in their life. Because, you see, God's power rests upon them. Well, what does it take? Real quickly, the scriptures, I think, tell us that as we look at this more deeply, that passages such as 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is more than just a lesson on God answering our prayers or dealing with what, what we should do when God do, doesn't answer our prayers as we decide. That's an important element of our study. But what's really involved here is a reorienting of our entire value system. That what God wants of us to truly be happy, what he desires for us is that we would adopt his value system into our life. That what is important to God becomes important to us. What satisfies God satisfies us. What pleases God would please us. And so the questions I think sometimes that are important about my own life is does doing the will of God bring me joy? Am I happy because I'm a Christian? Is his grace or his gift sufficient for me? Is what he provides for me, my lot in life and where I'm at, is that enough? Is it enough in my life just to bring glory to God? Even if that bringing to glory to God means I must suffer as a result of that. Does that satisfy me? You know, God is righteous. And so he's not indifferent to the aspect of his own glory. He will not trivialize that in his, in his relationship to us. But the good news is, is that he is also not indifferent to my joy. He would not press me into service against his will just so that he could make himself look good. That's a very distorted view of the God that we serve. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be joyous. And that one of the best ways to see that is to understand, again, in reorienting our value system, that God's laws and God's commands are designed to bring that about. That his, his laws are designed not to restrict me or to oppress me. Not to put himself up here and me down there. But rather, his laws are designed to provide for me the platform from which I can have the greatest joy in my life. That this is the pathway to true joy, is to obey God in all my life. One author calls this the secret code of joy. The secret code. You know, we like secret codes. Now look in here and see if we can find a way to interpret this. There's got to be a secret code, right? Well, I know that's the best way to explain it, but when you put the lens on and you look at God's law, this certainly comes out over and over and over again. That throughout the Word of God, what God commands us to do is intricately connected to his desire that we be joyous in our life and that we be satisfied and that we be filled up. He's not taking away. He's giving. 
And his commandments, John says, are not burdensome. First John chapter 5, verse 3. That's why John can say that. Because his commandments are the way to joy. They don't oppress us. He described those pharisaical traditions as those things that oppress and burden down heavy burdens that nobody can bear. He said, God's law is not like that. You've made it that way, but it's not that way. The psalmist, I think, bears this out. In the 19th Psalm, the law of the Lord's perfect. You know, uh, David breaks out here in a song about God's law. I don't know how many of us could pin law, can, could pin poems or songs about God's commandments, but this is how David sees it. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. You see, David says, this is the true value system of life. These things that God has given us, even His words, they're worth more than gold. You could fill up a bank with all the gold in the world and put them beside the commandments of the Lord. And David says, no, the words of God are worth more. Well, why are they worth more than all of that gold? Well, one reason is because they can bring you more joy than all that gold, right? If you have the words of God, if you have the commandments of God, if you have the law of God, if you have God's will in your life, you can be happier and more fulfilled than anyone who has all the wealth of the world. And the reason is because God made you that way and he made me that way. That stuff in the bank and that stuff we put all of our pride in cannot fill us up. It's not possible that it will fulfill us. But we are made for God's words. We are made to abide them and to have them and to live by them. They are that which gives us true meaning. Until I develop a heart that is made joyful in spiritual things, this world will continue to disappoint me. You see, that was Rocky's problem. He thought he knew what heaven would be like. He thought he knew what it would be like to be in heaven and get everything that he wanted. But when he got there, not only disappointed him, it didn't turn out to be heaven at all. And there is no heaven on this earth. There's no heaven in the physical reality that's around us. There's only heaven in the fulfillment of the words of God, the fulfillment of the promises of God. There's only heaven in the presence of God. And that's what David said. The fullness of joy is in your presence. So Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's an underlying truth that sustains the joy of obedience. It's not that I can do enough that I will be pleasing to God and therefore earn my way to heaven. It's not that I can do things that will make me emotionally feel good about myself. The underlying truth about the joy and obedience to God is that if I am in Christ, not only is God no longer against me in His omnipotent wrath, but God is positively for me. In every way, God is on my side. Now that's the real source of joy in our life. If God is on my side. He's on my side when He forgives me of my sins. When He makes me righteous so that I can go to heaven. He's on my side when He provides deep and enduring joy in my life. When He provides even those little pacifiers that He gives me every now and then to take pleasure in. And then He tells me to take pleasure in those things. And to work with my hands and provide for the things that I have in my life. And to enjoy life. 
God is on my side. When I suffer and I'm given, you see, the disciplines of life and things go badly and I have to work through them and put my trust more and more in God, God's on my side in that. He's not working against me. Because God wants what is best for me. And He finds joy in doing what is best for me. To me, that's a profound thought. I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating and thrilling and profound that God finds pleasure and doing me good. The words of Jeremiah come to life here. Jeremiah said, speaking for God, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. You ever think about God doing something with all his heart and with all his soul? That's how Jeremiah describes his desire to do what's good for you and me. I don't know if Israel could get that picture when they went into the land and saw all that God was doing for them as a nation in that wonderful place he provided for them. But I'm absolutely positive that you and I can get that picture at Calvary, can we not? That God wants what's best for us. and That he finds pleasure even to his own suffering to do what is best for us. That he rejoices in doing us good. Thank you for your attention tonight. Certainly we want to recognize the importance of being in